1: If you think that the constitutional crisis is complicated, that successful, obviously, if you want to use that term, assassination, has raised all kinds of issues. What we do know from the government side is that you had 28 mercenaries that were part of that force that supposedly killed and assassinated the president in a very vicious way. There were 26 Colombians and there were two Haitian-Americans. The police said that they've killed three of the Colombians and that they've arrested 15 of the Colombians. So therefore, you have a few more on the loose and uh, it looks like they are going to be captured, but they are still not uh, in the hands of the police. Now, I say that this is complicated. It's simply in terms now of the operation itself. What we do know is that there was essentially no security detail in the residence of the president.
2: I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare podcast for July 13th, 2021. Last week, the country of Haiti was rocked by the assassination of its controversial president, Jovenel Moïse, who was killed in a bizarre plot, the details of which are still being uncovered. Louis's death is yet another shock for a Haitian political system that was already in a state of crisis and has some calling for foreign intervention, a controversial proposal with which Haiti has a long and difficult history. To discuss these developments, I sat down with Professor Robert Faton Jr. of the University of Virginia, a native of Haiti and widely published expert on Haitian politics. We discussed what we know about the assassination plot and what it may mean for the country and region moving forward. It's the Lawfare podcast for July 13th. Robert Fetton on the assassination in Haiti and its aftermath. Professor Fetton, let's start here. Tell us a little bit about who President Jovenel Moïse was prior to his assassination and the role he had come to play in the Haitian political scene.
1: Okay, well, Jovenel Moïse was, before his political career began, he was a businessman. He was in the banana export business. And he became friendly with the previous president, uh, Michel Martelly. And Martelly essentially decided that he would be the candidate of his party. And his party is named Tete Calais in Creole, which means bold head. So that's the way Jovenel Moïse appeared on the political scene. No one had really heard him uh, about him. And then he suddenly became the, candidate of uh, Martelly. And uh, there were contested elections, uh, very complicated process, and he was eventually elected with very, very limited political participation on the part of the population. It got barely, I think, 15% of the vote. Uh, He was elected in 2016, but took power in 2017. So that's how uh, Jovenel Moïse became president. He's essentially, politically, a product of uh, Martelly's choice, and he was the dominant figure of his party Ted Calais. Now, prior
2: to his assassination, President uh, Moïse was involved with a dispute regarding the, his term in office and the period to which he would be able to remain as president. Is that correct? Can you give us a little
1: background on that? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, uh, when he was elected, his election itself was perceived by many in Haiti as being somewhat illegitimate. Afterwards, uh, there were a series of massive protests about two years ago related to an investigation about Petro-Caribe, which is a very complicated scheme whereby the government of Venezuela was giving money to Haiti and they were giving oil. But there was... Massive uh, corruption in this, and uh, some of the reports indicated that Moise was part of that. So it is in that climate of political protest, political instability, that we get to the most immediate element of the crisis, which was that uh, President Moise uh, extended his presidency to 2022, February of 2022. And there is a huge constitutional dispute about it because when he was elected, that was in 2016, but because of the problems in that election, he assumed the presidency only in 2017. And the term of a president is five years. So what Jovenel Moïse argued is that he would serve five years and that he would leave... In 2022. Now, the opposition and a large segment of civil society in Haiti argued no, you have to respect the constitution. You have five years you're elected in 2016, so you should exit in 2021. And he refused. And there were a series of protests as a result of that. But eventually, uh, President Moise won that battle, if you wish and he remained in office up till his assassination. Uh, This is only part of the story, because it gets extremely complicated when you look at the constitution. In Haiti, we have a constitution of 1987. That constitution was amended in 2012, and the chain of succession for the presidency varies very significantly from one constitution to another. In the original Constitution, the president, if he died or if there was any type of vacancy, the chief justice would assume the presidency for a temporary period and then there would be uh, uh, elections. Now, the chief of justice died of COVID a few weeks ago. So there is no chief of justice. And the other justices are contested too. So that's a serious problem. But and this is where things get even more complicated, the amended constitution of 2012 says it is the prime minister who should get power in case of vacancy and he should run the country with the support of his cabinet. That would appear, therefore, that the prime minister is a legitimate successor of uh, Jovenel Moïse after his assassination. But there are several twists here, because the prime minister Claude Joseph was supposed to have been replaced. This I mean, last week, just before the assassination of Jovenel Moise, and actually Claude Joseph had accepted to step down and to become the foreign minister of Haiti under uh, the prime minister Ariel Henry. So when the assassination occurred, Ariel Henry declared that he was actually the prime minister and that Joseph should join his cabinet as foreign minister. Obviously, Claude Joseph decided, no, 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 I'm acting prime minister, but I'm in charge till we have new elections. And the international community, at least the UN, has seemed to indicate that they are supporting Claude Joseph. So you have two prime ministers, actually, or two people who are contesting the position. So that's part of the problem. Now, if you want another twist, and this is just related to that issue of succession, it is that uh, according to the amended constitution of 2012, if the president dies, or if there is any vacancy in the presidency, then it is the parliament which will nominate a provisional president. The problem is that we don't have a parliament in Haiti now. We don't have a functioning parliament. There has been no elections at the parliamentary level. So there is no parliament. But that hasn't stopped 10 senators who are still effectively elected senators, to say they are going to support a provisional president by the name of uh, Senator uh, Joseph Lambert. And uh, that is, as it were, a third part of uh, the Haitian government. So you have two prime ministers, you have potentially a provisional president. And finally, the last twist is that if you go along with the 2012 constitution, which was amended, Some constitutional experts in Haiti say that that constitution is not the real constitution because it was never translated into Creole. It was translated on, it was just written in French. And according to the original constitution, if you're going to have an amendment, the amendment has to immediately be published in Creole in the official government paper of record, which is called Le Moniteur. That was never done. So we are operating basically in a situation where the constitution is no longer uh, valid because it does not indicate in any way who should be the president. So this is a situation which invites clearly uh, period of great uh, volatility and instability. And there is a fight clearly between all of those different actors. And on top of that fight, you have the international community. And the final factor in that crisis is that you have had uh, the emergence of civil society and civil society that is uh, extremely vocal, but rather poorly organized. And it does not really accept the legitimacy of the current government. And it is also very worried about uh, the traditional political uh, opposition. So you have uh, different actors contending for power. The question then is, can you get a compromise between all of those actors that would uh, set up a provisional government that would uh, seek to appease the different social forces and generate a climate where you can have some election that will uh, be perceived by the Haitian population as uh, legitimate, free, and fair. So this is essentially where we are.
2: You've really given us this tour de force of the incredibly difficult situation that Haiti's found itself in in regards to its prominent institutions. What has it meant on the street in Haiti for the last several years, even before this most recent trauma of the assassination? What has it meant for rule of law in Haiti and the effectiveness of its governance? One would think it would be a challenge even in normal times, let alone against the backdrop of the global pandemic. So what? how has Haitian society and, and governance reacted, given these major questions about its fundamental institutions and, and constitution?
1: Yeah, well, we've reached a point of utter decay of the fundamental institutions of Haiti. I mean, we don't have a legitimate, pre- well, we don't have a president. He was assassinated and he was already contested. We have two prime ministers. They are contested. We have a provisional president that has been nominated by the Senate, is contested. And then we have civil society. The average Haitian, I'm not talking about educated elite and the fairly well-to-do people in uh, Haitian society. I'm talking about the vast majority of the population. They are really outside the system. I think they've given up to a large degree on uh, the government and on politicians. There was a resurgence, as I've said, of civil society in the last two years. And those are the very young people, when I say very young students, some trade unionists, lawyers, activists, uh, journalists. And that population is very, very young. I mean, if you look at Haiti, it has had a demographic transformation. Most people in Haiti now are people who are not only that young, but they are also uh, without historical memory. You know, when Duvalier fell, most of that generation that was in the street never lived through the dictatorship of the Duvalier. And the only thing that they've known is crisis after crisis since the fall of Duvalier. I mean, you just look at what has happened in 80s since 1986. It's a series of events that have led to an accumulation of small and big crises up to this very moment in 2021, when the assassination of the president has really been the extreme form of that expression of that crisis. Even in a country like Haiti, where we've had nasty dictators and very incompetent leaders assassination of a president is very rare and in very different context. You know, The last assassination of a president was in 1915, just before the first American occupation that lasted to 1934. So that assassination is really a condensation, as it were, of the huge problems that Haiti is facing and has been facing. And for the vast majority of Haitians, you are trying to make a living. That's the bottom line. And there is a complicated new phenomenon, not entirely new, but much more pronounced, and that is the proliferation of gangs in uh, Port-au-Prince and in certain uh, major cities in Haiti. And those gangs actually have taken over part of Port-au-Prince, and the government has been unable to reimpose order in those areas. So therefore, you have a population that is really besieged not only because economically it is suffering, but also because they are confronting the violence of those gangs. Initially, those gangs were targeting uh, wealthy people, in other words, through kidnappings and things of that sort. But now, for the past three or four months, the phenomenon has really become widespread and poor people have been attacked and some sections of Port-au-Prince you have had a significant type of warfare between the different gangs they are vying for control of those zones and very poor people have had to abandon their houses and they are living in very crowded quarters in an area where the government has set up some sort of housing for them. So you have a crisis that is absolutely uh, multidimensional. And the average uh, Haitian, if he's healthy, and if he has some money, is just struggling. And finally, in the rural sector, we have a huge uh, crisis. And uh, estimates are that about 30 to 40 percent of the population of Haiti is f- facing uh, a food crisis. In other words, uh, is facing the uh, the, the impossibility of, of having a decent meal once a day. So it is really a massive and uh, despairing situation for uh, the average Haitian.
2: So on top of all of this, the assassination of President Moïse's is of course a major trauma and introduces another major shock to a system that has experienced a great deal of challenges. Tell us a little bit about what we know so far about the plot to assassinate President Moise. We know it was executed by a set of primarily former Colombian military personnel acting apparently as private security contractors or mercenaries of some sort. There were a few Haitian Americans involved, uh, although some reader reports indicate that they primarily claimed to have served as translators for this group, and it ended in part in a shootout with Haitian authorities in which several of the participants in this attack were killed, but many of the other have been arrested and The facts are obviously still being developed uh, and are in fact still coming out from Haitian authorities and others to this day but But tell us what we know as of the time of recording as you understand it about this plot and how it fits into this picture in terms of who may have it seems may have been involved and how it may have been intended to impact governance in Haiti.
1: Yes. Well, if you think that the constitutional crisis is complicated, that successful, obviously, if you want to use that term, assassination, has raised all kinds of issues. What we do know from the government side is that you had 28 mercenaries that were part of that force That supposedly killed and assassinated the president in a very vicious way. There were 26 Colombians and there were two Haitian Americans. Uh, The police said that they've killed three of the Colombians and that they've arrested 15 of the Colombians. So therefore you have a few more on the loose and uh, it looks like They are going to be captured, but they are still not in the hands of the police. Now, I say that this is complicated. It's simply in terms now of the operation itself. What we do know is that there was essentially no security detail in the residence of the president. Otherwise, especially that you have armed people getting into his residence, You'd have had a shootout, and we didn't have that. No one from the security of the president has been uh, killed or has suffered any injuries, and no one has seen anyone in the house of the president at the time supposedly of the attack. So that's one thing. The second thing, if in fact uh, those mercenaries, and I'm talking essentially of the Colombians, are our for- our former military people with great experience in the fight against uh, drugs and the guerrilla warfare in Colombia itself, one is really a bit shocked by the fact that they entered the residence of the president, they assassinated the president, and then they had no exit strategy. So why did they stay in the country? And there are very good reports that those Colombians were actually in their pickup trucks in the streets of Pétionville in the morning after the assassination. So how do you explain that? This is one of the questions that many Haitians have about the veracity about the assassination. The other interesting issue is that the two Haitian Americans were questioned by the police, and they've told the police that, in fact, they never intended to kill the president. They were there to seize the president, supposedly, arrest him, as they put it, and bring him to the national palace. And there he would sign a document saying that he is resigning, and someone else would become president. And this is where you have the last twist of the uh, whole saga, is that last night the police chief of Haiti, a fellow by the name of Léon Charles, has declared that they've arrested, actually, another Haitian American by the name of Dr. Sanon. And what the chief of police has said is that Dr. Sanon was the fellow who was supposedly organizing the mercenaries and was supposedly going to be installed as president. Now, the problem with Dr. Sanon is that he has no popular basis in Haiti. Most Haitians don't really know him in terms of a political figure. And from records in the United States, because he initially was located in Tampa Bay, well, (laughs) he went bankrupt in Tampa Bay, moved to Miami, and then moves back and forth from Miami to Haiti And last month, the police chief declared that he entered Haiti in a private plane. This looks like a crazy, frankly, incomprehensible story that you have someone who has no political parties and is bankrupt, uh, is going to hire 28 Colombians, uh, pay them, and according to the Colombians, they were supposed to be paid around $3,000 a month, and each of them. How in the heck could he pay that? So, there are real questions about the veracity of uh, the connection between the Colombians and uh, that person, Dr. Sano. Now, it may well be that he was a figurehead and that other forces are behind him. So, those are some of the complications. There are further complications because we've had recently uh, reports from Colombia and from a former Haitian senator, saying that, in fact, they believe that it is the security of the president, the very security that was supposed to protect them, that killed him. And then they would blame the Colombians for the assassination. And here you have some, apparently, videos that were taken at the time of the assassination. The Colombians, according to the the time that you can see on the videos would indicate that the Colombians came at around two o'clock or two thirty in the morning, and yet the government and the police in Haiti have said that the assassination occurred at one in the morning. And the Haitian Americans who were seized by the police have argued that they did not kill him, and that what happened, they arrived there, he was already dead, and in fact that they picked up his wife who had been injured and they transported her to a hospital. So you have a series of stories that are contradictory and so many questions that are unanswered. So this is where we are uh, as of today in that assassination plot. We don't know who paid for it. We don't know who would benefit from it. And clearly, uh, we don't know who's, as it were, the intellectual uh, brain behind it and why they would have an assassination of Jovenel Moïse. He had many enemies, but I really doubt that uh, the assassination would have benefited any of those uh, people in the political uh, scenery in Haiti you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. And enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeletemecom slash lawfare20 code lawfare20.
2: So, the close involvement of these two neighbors of Haiti, of Colombia and the United States, both of which have kind of unique relationships both with the region and with Haiti itself. Obviously, it's a, a major uh, Haitian expatriate population in the United States. Part of the reason why there's lots of some of the people involved of Haitian descent are. Originated in the United States uh, in this assassination plot. And Colombia, of course, is known for being a place that, because of its large military, produces a lot of private security contractors or mercenaries that are deployed all over the world in different capacities. And frankly, during my diplomatic career, I worked with Colombian private security contractors. Lots of people who worked in government or for the United Nations have as well because they're, they're fairly ubiquitous. What does it tell us that these two countries were, in, were involved? What is it that brought them into the orbit of this sort of plot? Are there dynamics there about the type of relationship these countries have with Haiti, or is it just a, a simply a, a strange coincidence?
1: Well, I think that the Colombian connection is fairly easy to understand in the sense that, as you just pointed out, the former military people in Colombia serve as security forces all over the world. And the Haitian government itself, a previous prime minister under President Moïse, uh, declared something like two months ago, uh, when he was in office, that they were going to have some expertise coming from Colombia to deal with the gangs. Now, the question that some Asians are asking, are those the experts that were supposed to, to fight against the gangs? Are those the experts who uh, were supposed to protect in some ways, if you wish, uh, the president against the gangs? And there is no clear answer about that. So the connection between Colombia and Haiti is uh, very much one about the security apparatus. The other connection, obviously, is the drug cartel, because Haiti has been used as a venue uh, for the export of drugs throughout the Caribbean and the southern part of the United States, principally uh, Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale. And there has been many... Uh, documented stories of drugs coming from Haiti going to uh, the southern part of the United States. So you have the drug cartel and people in Haiti who are involved in the drug uh, and drug trafficking. Many of the gangs get their some, uh, at least some part of their money from drug uh, trafficking. So you have that kind of uh, uh, very peculiar uh, military security drug uh, connections uniting uh, Haiti and uh, the United States now with the United States, clearly you know it 's a very large uh, Haitian community in the United States, and uh, Haitian Americans are still clearly linked to the country to a large degree. The economy of the c- country would come to a halt if it weren't for uh, the remittances of Haitian Americans to uh, their uh, brothers and sisters in Haiti, and the security situation is very much the same because the security business in Haiti is booming precisely because there is so much instability and because you have the gangs so wealthy people and to to some extent people who are not that wealthy seek some protection if you go around the wealthy neighborhood, now you will see that they have armed uh, guards in front of their houses, you have walls, etc. So there is some sort of security requirement in Haiti on the part of the very wealthy people. And that is very simply explained by the fact that you have a deep uh, social and economic uh, gap between the tiny minority doing very well and the poor majority. And that has created significant political tensions and grievances on the part of the majority. So you have a confluence of factors that uh, really explain the presence of Asian Americans and the Colombians. And there is the finally the Miami connection where apparently the security outfit that was recruiting uh, the Colombians uh, was located in Miami. And uh, the other story is obviously that, that Dr. Sanon is someone who moved from Miami uh, to, to Port-au-Prince, and that may be the link. Uh, but I doubt that ultimately that Dr. Sanon was the really the intellectual brain behind uh, the whole affair.
2: Now, one of the more interesting recent developments since the assassination particularly for a U.S.-based audience, at least, is the fact that we saw a call come from Prime Minister Claude Joseph, who you mentioned earlier, who's, who's acting as, as acting president uh, at the moment, uh, or as that's my understanding at least, Prime Minister, excuse me, who came out and made a statement essentially suggesting that a deployment of U.S. troops might be welcome or necessary to provide a degree of security in addressing the aftermath of this event. That request has been received, received fairly coolly and seemed to catch by surprise the Biden administration. I think the Pentagon spokesperson basically said this past Friday, we're looking at it, but don't have any plans to do anything along those lines. Instead, the Biden administration has condemned the assassination, of course, has uh, sent FBI personnel who supposedly arrived there today or yesterday to assist in the investigation. But this opens up this kind of very long history of U.S. military intervention in Haiti uh, over most of the 20th century. And and each of the presidents really prior to President Trump was involved in inter- military intervention in Haiti uh, in relatively recent memory. Tell us, wh- what does that relationship look like from the Haitian perspective? What led to these calls for U.S. involvement? And how does that fit into the political picture within Haiti that that's arising after this assassination?
1: Yeah, well... Uh... Haitians have a love-hate relationship with the United States and there is a very strong nationalistic uh, feeling in Haiti and uh, if you talk to members of civil society and members of the opposition, the last thing that they would want to see is another foreign intervention, let alone an American intervention. They would see that as uh, really a catastrophe. On the other hand, if you look at the immediate past history of Haiti and the United States, you have had multiple calls on the part of different uh, Haitian rulers for some form of intervention. And the most uh, dramatic was obviously the one that led to the restoration of President Aristide to the presidency in 1994, uh, when you had 20,000 Marines who came back with uh, President Aristide and put him back to power. Now, this is one of the most contradictory uh, recent events of that relationship, because you may remember that when Aristide was elected, he claimed that he was an advocate of liberation theology, that he was a leftist populist and that he didn't want to see American imperialism in the region. Now, uh, Aristide was overthrown and there are good uh, indications that uh, there was some connection between some members of the military, actually General Cedras and BNB, with the cia and that the cia might have known that the coup was coming and they essentially said go ahead on the other hand the state department apparently was against any type of coup even though aristide was perceived as being very radical and perhaps not the candidate that the u.s would have wanted actually there are good also indications that the U.S. wanted a fellow by the name of Bazin, who had been a prime minister and an economist at the World Bank, to be the president. But in any case, Aristide won uh, that election. So you have that tension. And as we discussed already, that tension is reflected in the uh, trajectory of Aristide. He's overthrown and he's claiming that the United States is an imperialist power, but then he's return, uh, thanks to Clinton and the Marines. And then the relationship between the U.S. and Aristide deteriorates very quickly. And the second time that he's elected, it doesn't last very long. As we know, the U.S., Canada and the French uh, were not too keen on Aristide. There had been problems uh, in terms of the parliamentary elections, but they imposed an embargo. That was another type of intervention, if you wish, in Haitian politics. And there was open support for the civilian opposition to Aristide. And that eventually led to his forced departure. The French and the U.S. organized it, etc. So you have that tension between calls for intervention and very vociferous calls for non-intervention. So when we are talking about interventions, we have to keep that in mind. The other element about the intervention is that initially, when the U.S. intervened in 1994, there was very strong support for that intervention because it was perceived as restoring the presidency of a legitimate and popular president. But the way Aristide came back started to weaken his popularity. He had to change the economic policies that he had promised. He had to sign documents with uh, the IMF and the World Bank to set the country into the neoliberal, if you wish, path of economic development. And he didn't want that, but he had to sign them if he was going to be restored to the presidency. So you have that love-hate relationship with the US. Then you have the UN, which is also part of that... uh, for an intervention history with Haiti. And as you know, once once the American left after restoring Aristide, you had the peacekeeping forces from the UN setting up shop in Haiti. Uh, That one was disliked, but not so profoundly as the second one. The second really major UN intervention comes after the departure of Aristide in 2004, the second departure of Aristide. And that was the so-called MINUSTA UN operation. And uh, while MINUSTA imposed a semblance of order, and I'm using the term semblance because you already had gangs and they dealt with the gangs in a rather brutal way, but they had set the country on a different path with the gangs. The areas had been essentially, uh, to put it crudely, cleaned up of the gangs with the military machinery of Minusta. That clearly was not something that all Haitians supported because in the destruction of the gangs, a lot of so-called, to use a terrible word, collateral damage uh, happened. With very poor people in the slums and what uh, further alienated the Haitian population from the UN was the cholera epidemics that came as a result of the occupation and the Haitians will never i think forgive the UN for first denying it then reluctantly accepting that they were responsible for it and never compensating the Haitian population. So you have very strong feelings against any type of foreign intervention. And the opposition, uh, civil society in Haiti have made it very clear that if there is a solution that is to be durable, it has to be a solution engineered by Haitians in Haiti. The foreign community can help, but they should not Intervene in any forceful way in the internal affairs of the country, and there is some, dis, uh, I mean, real anger about, uh, in particular, the UN representative, a lady whose uh, name is Li Mei, who has essentially said publicly that uh, the current prime minister is the prime minister of Haiti, and that has not played well. Uh, in Haiti because it looks like it's a foreign interference in the affairs of the country and that she has no no business designating who is the prime minister of Haiti. So you have that kind of animosity that is obviously uh, very present at the moment. Uh, And I could go on the historical background because, as you know, the United States occupied Haiti from 1915 to 1934, And that has left uh, a deep scar in the Haitian psyche.
2: Instead of going too far back in history, let's focus on the most recent chapter and pick up where you left off with this question of the United Nations, because, of course, the the most recent extended stint we've seen of a foreign presence, foreign involvement intervention in Haiti was under a UN auspices for more than a decade, really, uh, until relatively recently, until 2017. And this, you know, presence has had this very mixed I'm very negative in many ways regard in terms of some of what you've already noted, incidents of you know, violent conflict in some cases, incidents of cholera spread and disease, incidents of sexual abuse and violence, very credible accusations uh, against some of these UN peacekeepers. But some there are also some who say that this was a more successful model in some regards, or at least provided a baseline of security. We actually saw the Washington Post editorial board come out with an op-ed, essentially asserting as much, recognizing the failures of the UN presence, but also saying, but at least they secured a little stability that seems to be lacking here is there any sort of appetite for that view uh, either internationally do you find that view credible or is it uh, is that overstating the level of success even the international mission was able to accomplish on that lowest common denominator of stabilization
1: well there was a limited st- stabilization but if you're going to have such an intervention and the end result is a stabilization that has no roots as it were because once the troops exit things fall apart again then it's difficult to say that this is the type of stabilization that is going to offer uh, haiti a real uh, path uh, to a different uh, political dispensation and social dispensation now that doesn't mean that you're not going to have an intervention my own personal feeling is that if Haitians can't get their act together and fairly soon, there is going to be some sort of intervention. I doubt that the Biden administration is going to send American troops to Haiti unless things were to fall suddenly apart. And that would be a very sudden and you have massive chaos. Then that might happen. I assume that what we will have is very much the same thing that we had you know, after the departure of the American troops in 94 and after the departure of the French and Americans in the immediate aftermath of the forced departure of uh, Aristide. That is to say that uh, the so-called core countries, and they call the core countries essentially Americans, French, Canadians, and some Latino American countries, will probably put forward some kind of uh, dispensation whereby you would have uh, troops coming from the UN or from the Organization of American States. Uh, you know, they'll call them peacekeepers. And uh, that may well happen. I think there is a window of opportunity for Haitians to try to get a major compromise so they can have a government of national unity and the the possibility of settling the uh, disputes that we have now in a peaceful way and creating the context within which you can have elections. But I don't think, this is another contentious point, I don't think you should have elections in September as some people are calling for. I think that would be a disaster. Uh, there's no way that you can have elections at this time, uh, because the electoral council that was put together is not accepted by civil society or the members of the opposition. The logistical operation for, for having some legitimate elections do not exist. You have gangs in the country that have, as I've said, occupied significant portions of the large slums existing in Haiti. And then you have the possibility of a resurgence of COVID if the most, I mean, the strongest variant of uh, the pandemic were to arrive in the country. So I don't think this is the moment to organize elections. And then you have, obviously, the the assassination of the president. I think elections have to be organized properly and that you have to have a government of national unity before you can even think about organizing elections. You know, elections ultimately, in the context within which they've taken place in the last two occurrences, have been disasters. Because the person who wins is immediately contested, few people participate, and instead of consolidating... A democratic practice, it really alienates people from the democratic uh, system. Those type of elections, in my mind, are very dangerous uh, if you want to uh, really consolidate democracy itself.
2: You've anticipated my, my next question, which was exactly about those September elections that the Biden administration and the United Nations have both seemed to continue to support despite concerns along the lines that you've outlined there. I suspect that part of the reason they support them is that elections seem to present the clear it's institutional route to the formation of another sort of governing entity that may have some more legitimacy, more effectiveness. Although, as you have described, I think uh, very aptly, there are many reasons to doubt that that's necessarily the outcome that's going to arise. I think one of my last questions for you is really: is what are the alternatives there? You know, what is the alternative route to arrive at? a government of national unity or some other political arrangement that could more effectively organize elections moving forward, more effectively perhaps provide some semblance of security or other conditions that will allow for effective elections in moving forward? And what is the support the international community needs to provide to accomplish that, particularly as uh, military intervention may Proof or controversial, and there's reasons that people have raised doubts about how effective it really can be. What are the necessary ingredients the international community needs to bring to the fore to to put those conditions in place?
1: Well, I think uh, if the international community is to have a constructive role, I think it is to encourage not only the current government and the traditional opposition to get together and reach a compromise but also to integrate into the negotiations what, for a better word, you might uh, uh, call civil society, that youth that has emerged in the political system. In other words, have concerted uh, Haitian uh, discussion and a concerted Haitian negotiation that hopefully would lead to some sort of Real compromise between the different forces. That is extremely difficult in the context of Haiti because the political actors don't like each other. Not only they don't like each other, but they see themselves as illegitimate. If you ask, you know, people in the opposition whether Claude Joseph is a legitimate prime minister and his government, is it legitimate? They would say no. There's no way. A similar response on the part of civil society. Now, civil society has serious problems with the traditional opposition. And when they emerge, they wanted to demarket themselves from the government and the traditional political opposition. So you have a very complicated political scene in Haiti. But I think if there is to be hope, is that the crisis is so pronounced that it may compel actors who really don't like each other to accept a solution uh, under which all of them could uh, cooperate and have a legitimate outcome at the end through elections. But that would need real uh, negotiation between all of those parties And it may well be that you don't want the international community involved in this, except to tell them, yes, get together. We're not going to intervene. You have a window of opportunity to do it. And you may have uh, organizations that are outside the political system, as it were, uh, to lead those type of negotiations. I mean, uh, Haiti is a very religious country. So you, you could conceive of the Catholic Church you could conceive of the protestant uh, churches and also of the major religious uh force in Haiti, which is essentially uh, a voodoo force who well, are organized and recognized in the constitution. You take those forces, it's a very complicated and bizarre solution, but compelling Haitians to sit with Haitians uh, and having a certain moral commitment to having an outcome that will be different from the previous outcomes. So that's a possibility if the international community encourages that. But if the international community says very publicly, well, this is your prime minister and you're going to have elections in September, that to me is a recipe for disaster and for further uh, complications in the really profound crisis that we are facing now. And it may lead to an international occupation or or some sort of intervention precisely because the vast majority of Haitians do not recognize that government. They want an alternative government. So it's a very narrow path towards some type of compromise. And if it doesn't happen, the country may indeed fall into further uh, disorder and ultimate chaos. And that... Unfortunately, I think would open, uh, if you wish, the door to some sort of foreign intervention that the vast majority of Haitians do not want. And it may well be also that the Biden administration doesn't want to have troops elsewhere, especially after what is after Afghanistan. I mean, there may be a reluctance to put troops, although it is a very different context. And uh, to put it crudely, as some uh, American policymakers put it, it's the backyard of the United States. And you may have a significant crisis in terms of of migration and boat boat people and humanitarian crisis. So all of those things have to enter into the equation. And uh, policymakers, both in Haiti and in the international community, have to think seriously about the implications of uh, their behavior. And it's a very serious and probably the most serious crisis, political crisis that Haiti has faced in decades.
2: We will have to leave the conversation there. Professor Robert Faton, thank you so much for joining us today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you so much.
1: It was a pleasure.
2: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and review The Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. Also, to gain access to an ad-free version of our podcast and other benefits, consider supporting Lawfare on our Patreon account at www.patreon.com lawfare. This podcast was engineered by Hamza Shittu of Goat Rodeo and edited by Jen Patcha Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.